to shop. Um, and so like figuring out clothing and buying clothing. In fact, I rarely do it. I usually call my daughter and say, could you order me a pocketbook? Could you tell me what jeans could you get? You know, like I literally don't shop. And so my biggest angst uh, when it comes to getting ready to speak is like, what am I going to wear? Because like I have to figure out clothing. And so I kind of want you to know today that I merged together my worlds. I, I'm, I live in Dallas, Texas. So alas, cowboy boots. Um, but I am from upstate New York, so I am wearing my great-great-aunt's jacket that she gave me when she was 92. She was Jewish and lived in Manhattan and gave me this coat when she was 92. And so um, she's passed now, but, um, and she's everything that you can imagine about being a Jewish woman in Manhattan. So these worlds are merging together, and I'm really glad to be here because it's 103 in Dallas, Texas in August. Um, summer is a couple months away for us when it comes to actually cooling down, so it's nice to be in the 70s temperature. Um, as Rob said, I'm here, and uh, we're ending the series of Jesus' miracles in Matthew 8 and 9. And as we wrap up this series, Jesus is going to leave us with a question. It's a question he wants us to walk out of here with and noodle on. Like noodle means bounce it around in your brain, right? And the question he is going to ask you and I this morning through this passage is, do you believe that I am able to do this? No, do, do you believe that I am able to do this? This is the question that Jesus asked me when I was 22 years old. I remember I was in my room in our little Cape Cod house in upstate New York. A friend of mine had told me about Jesus, and I was upstairs in my room thinking about it, and I started listing all the things that I had done to try to fill my soul, right, to fill this hole. Sex, drugs, rock and roll. You know, I'd got a devil tattoo on my hip which was very interesting when I moved to Dallas and was in seminary and went to the pool. <laughs> Still trying to figure that out, people are, you know? And so I was listing basically for Jesus all of my sins, although I didn't know that that's what I was doing because I was, you know, not very, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I'd never been to church. I didn't read a Bible. And so I just knew enough like childlike faith. And I was listing my sins and I said to Jesus, okay, they tell me that you're the answer. And so I'm willing to give you a shot. Now, how's that for great theology? As if you can give him back. Let me tell you, you can't, Right. So that night, Jesus asked me that question. You know, do, do you think I'm able, Jackie, to forgive your sins, the one that you've done, in the, the ones you've done in the past, the present, the ones you will do in the future? Do, do you think I'm able? And the flip side of that, because salvation isn't just forgiveness of sins, it's also the other side of the coin is restoration. Do you think that I can restore you to wholeness? to well-being, to a life that flourishes? See, that was the question Jesus asked me 31 years ago. But here's the deal. He's been asking me that question on and off throughout my walk with him over the past 31 years. It's not a one-time question. It is when it comes to salvation. It's not like he asked me again about my salvation, but he has asked me in certain situations. Jackie, do you believe that I am able? And that's the question he's going to ask us 
to noodle around here this morning as the Spirit talks to you through me and beyond me and outside of me and as you walk out of this room. So we're going to dive into the passage. Um, For those of you that are online, if you could, I don't know, get out your iPhones, your iPads, your Bible. Some of us actually still walk around with books in our hand. You know, and open up to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be in verses 27 through 34. And um, they asked me to read from the NIV because I guess that's the translation that most of you read from when you're in the church here. And so I didn't bring mine up because I read from a different one, so they gave me one. Um, I don't know who owns this Bible, but they're young. You know how I can tell? Because I can't see the, the letters are really small. 20-year-olds buy this Bible. All right. Here's what it says. As Jesus went out from there, now we need to pause. Out from where? Well, he had just healed the little girl, and right? So we have that. When Jesus went out from there, healing the little girl, two blind men followed him. Got to stop there. Now you're getting nervous, aren't you? Because you're thinking, we are not getting along very far, and this could go on for a long time if I keep stopping. Two blind men follow him. This is significant because you have learned over the series that whenever you see someone in the New Testament that has a physical ailment, it's not just a physical difficulty that they come up against, right? It impacts their spirituality, where they can worship, who they can hang out with. It impacts them financially. And so this is a a difficult situation, a desperate situation that these blind men find themselves in. As Jesus went out from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. And when he, Jesus, had gone indoors, the blind men came in after him, and Jesus asked, pause there. I want you to just set the scene in your mind. We have two blind men who are following Jesus around. I want you to see him. They're like, Wherever Jesus is going, they're following him, and they're yelling loudly at him. And and Jesus walks into this house, and they just kind of plow into the house after him. I mean, that's kind of rude. And what I see in just seeing that picture is these guys are desperate. They're persistent, right? They plow right in, and they yell, have mercy on us, son of David, So we have to pause and say, well, what does mercy mean? Because this is the heart in which they come to Jesus. Mercy means to have compassion, some act of compassion that's undeserved, a gift, kindness. It's fascinating because if we kind of go back to Matthew chapter 5, which comes before Matthew chapter 9, and Matthew connects his thinking all the way through the gospel, he tells us this, he, he talks about the Sermon on the Mount, right? Which is this concept that Jesus is laying out about what the new kingdom will look like, how this kingdom society will look, the ethics in which we will live, the heart in which we will have. And he says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, blessed is he who is poor in spirit. These men are coming to Jesus poor in spirit. And Jesus said, blessed is he who is poor in spirit. Now, in the book of Matthew, whenever you see the word blessed, you can circle it and put next to it the word flourishing. Okay, so if you're taking notes, blessed means flourishing in the gospel of Matthew. And so what Jesus is saying is, blessed is the poor in spirit. Somehow, having a heart where we come to Jesus dependent and asking and begging and pleading and crying out loud for an act of of compassion 
and mercy. Somehow coming in that state in our heart and our mind creates the ability for flourishing to happen in us and through us and beyond us. Have mercy on us, son of David. Now we know from Matthew 1.1 that the son of David is a title for the Messiah to come, right? We know this. Matthew ties Jesus tightly to this whole concept. David's David, the Davidic line will produce the Messiah. And these Jewish boys know that the Messiah is coming. Like they know their scriptures. And these Jewish boys also know what Isaiah 35 says about when the Messiah comes. And listen to what the scripture says. And they know this because they're Jewish. And then the eyes of the blind will be opened. Now, this is good news for a bunch of guys who are blind, right? Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, and the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy. Now, listen to the flourishing. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Identifying Jesus, have mercy on a son of God like Jesus being the Messiah is good news for these dudes. And it's after they say this to Jesus that Jesus pauses, turns to them, and says in the house, do you believe that I am able to do this? Now, that's kind of a weird question to ask in light of what just happened, right? Of course they believe that he can heal because they just saw the girl get up or heard the girl get up, that the girl got up, right? And they, and they have just said, we believe you're the Messiah. So why is Jesus asking? Why is he pushing them? By the way, whenever Jesus asks a question, he's pushing us. Come on, think deeper, broader. What am I going after here? It's not as obvious as you're trying to hear. Come on, come on. So he's pushing them for something more. And see, Jesus knows something about these Jewish men that we don't know because we're not Jewish, we didn't come from the first century Judaism, and so we're not always aware of what was happening there. But at that time, a Jewish person would believe in the one true God. And they would believe that that one true God was all-powerful and did saving acts like parting the Red Sea. This is what they would think about their God. They also would believe that that God is the one who would send and anoint and appoint the Messiah, the king that would rule for God on earth. And so this is what those Jewish boys believe, and Jesus is pushing them. And basically what he's asking them is, hey, um, I'm not just some good guy. I'm not even just a good prophet. I'm not just a brilliant ophthalmologist. I'm asking you, I'm actually revealing to you, I am that God that you believe in, in the flesh, standing right in front of you. That God that you think is all-powerful, that does saving acts, that's the one standing in front of you. This is what he's pushing. See, because it's one thing to be a good guy who does really good things, that's one thing. But to be the one who spoke creation into being, like, like threw stars into the sky and said to the ocean, here, you can go here and no further. Ponder that for a second. You can go here and no further. See, it's one thing to be a good guy who does really good things. It's a whole other thing to be the one who creates something out of nothing, who brings dead things back to life. Jesus is pushing with the question, 
This is what he's asking the blind man. Who am I? And what exactly do I do? And this is what he asks us to. Not just at our salvation, but along the way as we journey in this life, right? Because the truth is, as we move along, we come across some really hard things, don't we? We end up divorced or bankrupt. We have physical ailments that are not getting better. We live in systemic sin, right? We have structural sin where the whole society is set up to function in a way that is uh, sinful. We have racism and sexism and classism. We live in it. We swim in it. We hit hard. And some of you in here are in the hard right now. And you know as well as I do because I've hit hard. Sometimes when we can't see... (laughs) how it's going to come out, we start to waver a little bit about who Jesus is, right? About what he's able to do. And we don't tell other people that because that doesn't look very spiritual, but we start thinking it. We waver. Really, Lord? I mean, you can restore this. Where's flourishing going to come out of that? I mean, this is what we start to ask. And this is exactly what John the Baptist is asking. I think Pastor Rob brought this up in the first series. Um, John, uh, John the Baptist is in two chapters from Matthew 9. So in 10, 11, yeah, that's two, thank you. I don't do math very well either. And so in chapter 11, um, John the Baptist is in prison. And he's about to be beheaded, which that's kind of a hard thing, don't you think? Thank you. It is kind of funny, right? Because, like, when we talk about hard, it doesn't get much harder than that, right? Like, so he's about to be beheaded, and he, sa- he sends a messenger ahead, and he, he says, ask Jesus, are you, are you the one, or should I, should I, like, wait for someone else? Now, this is a fascinating question that John is asking at this time in his life, because John, when he was in his mother's womb, he knew Jesus was the one. He leaped. John has always known Jesus is the one. So right now, when things aren't looking real good for John, when it doesn't look like things are gonna, Jesus is gonna come through for him, he's asking. And listen to what Jesus does. He says in Matthew 11, one through six, tell John, this is what's happening. This is what I'm doing. And he says, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed, what's the word that we replace it with? Flourishing. Good now, we're paying attention. Blessed is the one who doesn't fall away, stumble on account of me. Flourishing, you will flourish if in, when it doesn't look like it's working out the way you think it's supposed to go, if you don't stumble because it's not quite what you expected. Because I'm not doing exactly what you thought I should do, Jackie. And what he's saying to John is take a look around because I'm doing something. I'm at work, John. I'm doing what I said I would do. And... Um, I grew up um, in a home with an abusive father. I have four siblings, so there are five of us. And his abuse growing up really marked all five of us. Alas, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and the tattoo, right? They're all kind of tied. 
And when my dad was about 60, in his 60s, he kind of went nuts. And when I say kind of, I mean he did. I would say he had some kind of mental illness at this point. Um, He went from a guy who never drank or did drugs to like doing drugs and pulling guns on people. And even at the point, he even got to the point where um, he threatened to kill my sister, my younger sister, on her wedding day. And so we had him arrested, and then he was released, and then we hired a bodyguard for her wedding. And it was during that time frame, you know, my dad just blew up our family, all five of us and my mom. Financial ruin, relational rupture, emotional rupture, just blew it all up. That was 15 years ago. And a couple years after, this pastor showed up at my dad's house and led him to Christ. And that's a great thing. And I would like to say to you that after that, voila, everything was amazing. Like, just better. But that's not the case, right? So my dad is 79, And it takes a long time when you're in your older years to deconstruct all that you think you know and all that you have done and let Jesus reconstruct, right, your journey of faith. It takes some time to grow up in the faith. My dad doesn't have time. And it takes time for the spirit to work in ruptured relationships and ruptured finances, right? There are five of us and my mother, My dad's relationship with my younger sister has been particularly strained, as you can imagine. Years and years of absolute no contact, bitter hate, resentfulness, anger. And then one day, I received a phone call from my younger sister. And she said to me, I saw dad at the grocery store today. And I said hello. And I was like, what? I said hello. And right there it was. Right there it was. Like this glimpse. It's not the full thing. The full thing I believe is coming. It's not the full thing, but it's a glimpse. It's a glimpse of forgiveness and restoration and flourishing happening. Now, I don't have any biblical proof for this, and this might make me sound unbiblical, but just hang in there. Um, I really believe that what will happen on the other side is that my dad and us kids and my mom will have an opportunity to go through the process of full healing, full restoration. It's not going to happen most likely on this side. And so what I have to do is I wait for the other side is I've got to watch and listen closely for the hellos in the grocery store. And so do you. This is what Jesus is telling John, and this is the hope he's giving us. If we're going to sit and be able to say what the blind men said to Jesus when, they, at, when he asked this question, yes, Lord, I believe you are able, that in the midst of the heart, we're going to have to look and listen for the hellos in the grocery store. Let's move on in the passage because that's not the only way people respond to Jesus when they see him doing beautiful, profound, flourishing things. 
We have the Pharisees in this second part of the passage. Turn with me to 32 through 34. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. So here we've got the blind men who say, yes, Jesus, I believe you are able. And then we've got the religious people saying, hmm, I don't think that's of God. I think that's evil. The emphasis that Matthew has here when he's talking about the mute is not so much the miracle of the mute. It's actually about demonic activity. He's really like pushing us to pay attention to the pharisaical response. Now, if you know anything about the Pharisees, you know that in Jewish time, in this time in history, that they were in charge of studying the scriptures and then like telling people, hey, this is what the scripture says and this is how you live it out in daily life. And what they did was they would have like Exodus 3 or Deuteronomy 5 or Leviticus 12 and they'd say, okay, here's what that passage says. And they'd put all these rules and rituals and traditions around it. They call them fences. See Picture it, a fence around that particular verse. And they'd say, okay, here's how that particular verse is supposed to look, like what you can do and what you can't do and who's in and who's out and what's clean and what's dirty and all of these fences around that passage. Now, the reason they did this, a big reason they did this, is because they were under Roman occupation. They were occupied by the Romans. I got that backwards. And which meant that during this time, the Romans were doing everything they could to defile and pollute the Jewish people and their faith. We have historical documents that tell us that the Romans would try to force Jews to eat pork, which was against their faith. That we have documents that tell us they placed false gods, statues of false gods all over the public places. And, and if you were an Israelite and you wanted to make a deal with somebody and you went to the theater to make a deal or to the baths, you'd had to decide because there's those statues. What are you going to do with the fact that they pray to them or bow to them before they st- the theater starts? And So they were constantly defiling. They even went into the temple. And so what the religious leaders did was they built all these rules and rituals and traditions around God's word so that they could remain pure. Like, this is how we can stay undefiled. This is what will define us as pure, right? This is what will separate us and keep us distinct as we are under Roman occupation. And so that's one of the reasons they did it. These are the rule makers and the rule keepers. And to be honest with you, because they were the rule makers and the rule keepers, they actually had high status and a lot of power among the Jewish people. This is important to know because you can see why they have a lot to lose if they look at the works of Jesus and say, oh, that's of God. Right? Because what is Jesus doing? Well, he's eating with sinners, the unclean people. He's hanging out with Matthew, who swindles people for money, right? He's healing on the Sabbath. I mean, he is breaking all of those fences down, isn't he? And this is problematic for the religious leaders. They're working to keep the Jewish people pure, and they're working to keep their power and their position. 
Now, I would love when I see a passage, you know, I dive into this and I think, oh, the last person I want to be identified with is the Pharisees, right? Like, I really like saying, oh, I'm, I'm the two blind men. That's how I approach Jesus. But that's just not true, is it? Sooner or later, all of us, one time or another, on and off, build these rules, these rituals, these traditions around God's word, right? And, and we don't even know how it happens or how we even get there, but at some point, we get to the point, like the Pharisees, where actually, like, keeping the rules becomes the object of our faith. So much so that we can't even see when God starts to operate outside of them. And sometimes we even go so far as to claim that what God is doing is evil. We do it. I remember when my son Hunter was in high school. He's 29 now. But in high school, he would spend his weekends at our church. Our church looked very much like this. Um, this reminds me of exactly working there. But, and he spent many weekends working at the church for free. He just would go serve. It was kind of a safe place. It was where his people group was. And this one particular weekend, he had come to the church, and he had decided to give his whole Saturday to cleaning up what's behind the stage, behind that curtain. Behind that curtain is some very interesting things. Because, you know, like, while they're getting ready to do the music and everything, they throw things back there. There's probably crumbs and bad food and mold and all, wires that don't belong there and clothes and chairs and, right, like, all kinds of stuff that builds up behind that stage. And now every single one of you want to go see what's behind that stage, right? It's our little sinful nature. Really? Oh, I want to see what's dirty behind there, you know? And so my son spent his whole day organizing and cleaning behind the stage. And then on Sunday, the next day, he spent the whole time with the team that does wiring for the sound system in the sanctuary and in the children's ministry and all of that. And he wore a hat on Sunday. Now, we're not even talking Sunday service right here. We're just talking in the church during the day with a hat. And this man came up to my son and shamed him. And he said to my son, you should know better. You are a pastor's child, which right there, I just want to clonk him, right? Do not do that, right? Do not say to a pastor's kid, you should know better because you're a pastor's kid. What? A plumber's kid shouldn't know? An artist's child doesn't know? Just, just, a, just a pastor's kid should know, right? Like right there, you're turning him into a Pharisee, right? So you should know better because you are a pastor's son. You should know not to wear a hat in the church. And my son came to me, and like he was, he was ashamed. He felt humiliated. And he was upset, and he's like, Mom, I didn't mean to. And I'm like, who did it? Who said it? You want to see a woman become a warrior? Talk about her husband and her kids. She'll take you down, right? Pastor or not. And so I, like, he didn't know, thank goodness, for that man. And what went through my mind is, are you kidding me? He's a teenage boy in high school whole weekend here serving in Jesus's house for Jesus's people. And all you can see is the hat. Like sometimes the rules and rituals and traditions get built around clothing, don't they? Other times they get built around things that are way more divisive than whether some kids wearing a hat or not. Like women 
and what women can and can't do. And that's what my ministry is about. I train women all over the United States and internationally, right, on how to study the Bible. And if they want to learn how to become good teachers of the word, I do that. And I dive them into the scriptures and let them know what Jesus thinks about them as women. And so I spend my life ennobling, lifting women up to nobility, as Jesus intended in the scriptures. And it just so happened two weeks ago, I was in India, as Pastor Rob said, I was invited to work with 22 women from the Hindu culture, Hindu faith, that had converted to Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if you know this, but there are not many Christians in India. It's very rare. Small percentage. 22 women converted to Jesus Christ, and they got so excited about Jesus that they started going to villages near theirs and telling other people about Jesus. And then they went again to another village and told more people about Jesus, right? They didn't know anything other than Jesus saves. They were so pumped. Now, in that culture, you're really not allowed to leave your village and go travel somewhere unaccompanied without a male husband, father, or brother, And yet these women were pairing up with other women. Come on, let's go. It's so exciting. And they were risking their reputation as being seen as promiscuous. And people actually were coming to their husbands in the village and saying, why are you letting your wife do that? Is she prostituting out there? I mean, lots of oppression. And so they just kept going from village to village. And slow but surely, villages, groups of people started coming to faith. And they said, well, let's... Let's have a house church in this village. Let's have a house church in this village. And, and people started praying in these house churches, and they started tithing, and they got baptized, and they started studying scripture, and then more and more and more. And I think we're going to put up a picture. Yeah? Somewhere. Okay. See the big circles at the top with the red writing in it? Those are those 22 women. There's three represented just there. Okay. And this is just a couple years old. This is only two, I think, two years since they've been doing this. All the little circles underneath them, those are house churches that they have planted. Thousands and thousands of them. I mean, these women are pumped about Jesus, right? And so they invited me to come train these women because they don't know anything about Scripture. And here they are telling people about Jesus. And they said to me, would you come train them how to study the Bible? I'm like, you bet I will. And so I'm there with these 22 women leaders who are house planting churches everywhere. And they share with me, they're a bit distraught. They're really hurting because after they started having thousands of churches pop up in these villages, the Christian leaders came to them and said, you can't be doing this. You, you cannot be. In fact, what you are doing is evil. Because you are women. I mean, the spirit is blowing in India. We have these rules, rituals, traditions, right? Whether it's about hats or who can do what. And sometimes we don't even know how it happens, but we slide over and those rules and rituals and traditions become the object of our faith. I mean, we'll hold on. We'll go to the grave for them. Even when Jesus is working outside of it. And sometimes we go so far as to say, that's not Jesus. That's evil. 
we do this. You do it. I do it. So what do we do about that? Because it's here in the passage. Matthew's flowing his logic here for us to, well, I would say he's, he's asking us to go back to what happened before with the two blind men. He said, you want to know what to do? You act like those two blind men. Right? You come to Jesus like they came to Jesus. Now, here's what I would say. When I gave those examples about the hat and then the more divisive one, which is about women, you started to fight with me. About 70% of you in here went, yeah, but what about? And you threw up one of the things that are important to you. Can I get a yes, I did that? You don't, you don't have to admit. It's about 70% of you. By the way, we preachers know that you fight with us. We know that you converse with us all the way through our message. We're aware of that. I do it too, by the way. I sit there, yeah, prove that. Mm-mm, not buying it, right? You, 70% of you had something that came to mind that you would like me to discuss with, well, how does that play itself out? And I'm here to say that thing right there, that's what Jesus is saying, come. Come to me with. Come on. Come to me and come to me like the blind men. I want to talk about that. We come like the blind men, right? Seeking and needing kindness and forgiveness and compassion, right? Matthew tells us in Matthew 9.35 that Jesus has compassion on his people because he sees that they are sheep without a shepherd. And remember, we come poor in spirit. That's where flourishing happens, poor in spirit. So we come to Jesus and we say, point it out, please tear it down. Like, and this is painful, I know. We ask Jesus to restore our hearts back to his heart for his people because it can get hardened toward his people. We ask him, teach us, reteach us, teach us again, Lord. I know, hey, I have studied the word for 31 years. I have two degrees. I've written over 20 Bible studies. Like, I know scripture. I'm not always right. And neither are you, even with everything you know. I don't know if you know this, but sometimes the church has been wrong. Like, it turns out, the world is not flat. It is round. And it turns out that slavery is wrong. Sometimes we're wrong, even when we have studied. And Jesus says, come back to me. Let me teach, reteach. Don't think you're ever done. Ask him, ask him, ask him again. Matthew tells us that Jesus' teaching is taught with, he teaches with authority, which means it comes directly from God. It's not interpreted through other people. He teaches with authority, and his teaching is not burdensome like the Pharisees. Instead, it is easy and light. We come to him like those two blind men, right? We, we asking for power, his power, right? All the miracles in Matthew 8 and 9, we're asking for that kind of power to heal and restore and work our minds and our hearts to bring healing and flourishing in us and for us and through us and beyond us. And here's the thing, because I know what happens. I do it too. We start thinking, oh, but Jackie, you don't understand. If, if we loosen our grip on this one, like Christianity is just going to disappear. 
the church is going to be totally defiled, polluted by all those pagans out there that are just trying to change, right? I know it's fearful. It's, a, it's, it's, it's scary. What will happen if we loosen our grip? Well, that's where I see Jesus asking us this question again. Do you believe I'm able? I mean, how big do you think I am, Jackie? You think I'm some guy doing some good thing, or am I the one who spoke creation into being? Am am I the one who threw the stars into the sky and said to the ocean, "Ah, no more, no further? Am I the one who actually creates something out of nothing and resurrects the dead, dead things back to life all the time? Who am I, Jackie? What am I capable of doing? We don't have to worry if we're fearful. We just got to wrestle Jesus down with that question. Who am I? Do you believe I am able? Rob was spot on when he started the series about what are the miracles for? Why are they in the scriptures? And they are there as signs, right? They're there as signs to tell us who God is and what he's up to now, the glimpses, the hellos in the grocery store, right? They're there to tell us who God is and what he's up to and where he's taking us and that he really, really loves us. And so to me, I think it's just perfectly fitting that Jesus ends this series with this invitation to let him heal our blindness. Whether it's a blindness because we're in a hard spot and we can't see it, and he's saying, look up, see the hellos in the grocery store. Or whether it's our blindness because we've put up a whole lot of fences, either way, we're blind. And so I want to end by asking that as men and women, that we would noodle around this question. You've been noodling it with the Spirit while I've been sitting here, and that you would continue to noodle it as you walk out of here. Because we are being invited as women and men to answer Jesus' question over and over again, do you believe I'm able? And I don't know about you, but I long to be with a group of my brothers and sisters who pronounce whether it's, oh, okay, I'll say it, or whether we just stand like, yeah, yes, Lord, I believe you are able. I think that's what he's asking of us in this community this morning, to collectively say, yes, Jesus Christ, we believe you are able. Pray with me. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there is hard in this room, And there will be hard coming in the future. And we need you, Jesus. We need you to remind us about who you are, what you are doing now, and where you are taking us in the future, and that you really, really love us. We need to be reminded that you make something out of nothing, and you resurrect dead things to life all the time. That's who you are. It's what you do. It's where we're going. We need that when we're in the heart. And Lord, we need it when we get all wound up about building fences. Forgive us, Lord. 
we have put up fences that have caused people trauma in even finding you <laughs> and pain amongst the brothers and sisters in the church. So I pray, Lord, that you would infuse us with your spirit that convicts us and comforts us and challenges us and guides us. Reteach us about those things. Lord, make us into a people that can say collectively together, yes, Lord Jesus Christ, we believe you are able. I ask these things for your reputation's sake so that your kingdom can continue to go through each and every one of us here on earth as it already is in heaven. Amen. Thank you.